Hey everybody, welcome to the Ralph Graves Jr. Show. I'm your host, Ralph Graves Jr., and I'm so glad you're here. No matter where you are right now or what circumstances you face, lasting success is within your reach. On this podcast, we'll have real conversations with people who have had to overcome unthinkable obstacles to achieve success. Are you ready to live with unstoppable momentum and focus? Well, today's your day. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Unstoppable Podcast with Ralph Graves Jr. My name is Ralph Graves. I say it during uh, before every episode. I'm so glad that you chose to listen to this episode. I mean, you guys could be listening to anybody, but the fact that you uh, stopped by here is uh, just makes me feel awesome. And so um, I, I always want to bring you guys to some great programming and some great guests. And I feel like I have arrived today because of my guest, <laughs> author Nefertiti Austin. How are you today? I am fantastic. Thanks for having me. So glad you? to have you here. Welcome to the Unstoppable Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, you have, you have, and let me kind of set it up for for the people listening. You have been, um, you wrote three phenomenal books. Uh, you've been published everywhere. I, I'm looking at my notes. You're Huffington Post, New York <laughs> Times. I mean, the list goes on and on. PBS, you know, it just goes on and on. I mean, it's so the life of a writer, the life of a writer, of a not just a writer, but, you know, one of the nation's top writers. How, how did that start? How did you <laughs> how did you begin? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's see. I began writing really as a little kid. My father used to write revolutionary poetry and I was in the garage about a month ago and I found a box of his uh, stuff that I still have. And um, so, you know how kids, we really do imitate our parents and your kids are imitating you whether or not you realize it. And so he would sit with his yellow legal tab and write. And so, you know, at five, I'm doing the same thing, thinking I'm doing something. I wasn't doing anything, but that's what he did. So that's what I was supposed to be doing. And my grandfather was a voracious reader. And I used to be, I've fallen off quite a bit with my reading, but he always had something to read. And as a writer, there's two things you always do. You're always reading and you're always writing. And so that was really how it began. And then I think what really sort of pushed me over the edge in junior high. uh, I think they call it middle school now. I read Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. And like so many writers, very heavily influenced by his words. And I think that that was, I I don't know what it opened for me, but it made me feel 13, 14 years old that I want to be a writer. That's what I want to be a lawyer and I want to be a writer. And so that was really the beginning of my desire to be a writer. So then in high school, I was on the debate team and um, there there were competitions for expository comps. So I began writing a little more and sharing a little bit more of what I had been writing and really carried this with me just for years and years. And it wasn't until I was in law school that I had written like the longest thing ever it was like 52 pages. And I thought, Oh my God, I, <laughs> this is the longest thing. Right. And, um, and I, my, I had friends who were reading as I was writing and they kept saying, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. And before yeah. I knew it, you know, a couple things happened. So a, I get kicked out of law school and B 
I had a book to show for it because that's what I was doing. <laughs> you got kicked study. out of law school. Oh, yes, it was fantastic. And I'm grateful to the good people <laughs> who saw what I could not see was that I, I had no business there. Right. And um, so in any event, that's that was how the, the first sort of formal writing really began. Wow. And I was able to get two books published actually pretty quickly. I was in mid 20s and then it would be another big gap before I got published again. But that was really how it started. Just my love of writing, my love of words, my love of books. Well, you know what? And you just, you know, um, you, you said it, you said something there and, and I, I want to kind of key on, this is the unstoppable podcast. You know, a lot of times we think because we uh, get kicked out of something, fail out of something, dismissed from something. So many people think that's the end. What was that feeling? What was that moment? Because you were in law school, so you were getting yeah, yeah. it done. Yeah, yeah. What, what did that, when they said, hey, listen, Nefertiti, this ain't for you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> talk about, talk about that. It was, it was a sigh, really for me, it was relief. Um, so yeah. I always wanted to be a lawyer and a writer, always, always, always. And, okay. but I, the, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how to make the leap from, I want to be a writer to becoming a writer. So in undergrad, I thought, oh, I'll major in English, but it was very Eurocentric. It was very boring. So then I was right. like, okay, that's not going to work. So then I thought, okay, I'll major in creative writing. I want to be a writer, right? So I'm going to yeah. take some classes. And my counselor, you know, he was fantastic. He said, ah, you know, you're young, you're 18, and you're still developing your style. I don't think that's a good suggestion because you don't know who you are yet. And you're going to get shaped before you're ready, essentially. Right. Okay. And so he's like, what do you like? And I said, well, I like history. And he said, okay, well, then you major in, you know, what's going to be the fastest path to graduation. And that's what I did. Absolutely loved um, history. Yeah. So I finished undergrad and the first year I did not get into law school because I didn't want to leave California. And okay. so I only applied to a couple of schools. And so that should have been my, my telltale right there. The right, fact that right. I didn't cast a wide net. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then I take the LSAT again and I work at a law firm and a very good friend of mine, he's a judge now in Boston. I remember distinctly, he said to me, I'm bored and I'm a lawyer and I'm the file clerk. He's like, you have to be bored. And I, I missed it. <laughs> I didn't get what he was trying to tell me. I'm 22. Right. Family expectations were in place because I had been saying this since I was a kid. Yeah. And so I went along on this path, even though there were these little things along the way that suggested otherwise. Yeah. So I get to law school and I was bored. I didn't think it was hard. I just thought it was just incredibly boring. I felt oppressed. Right, <laughs> so right. Stressed. Yeah. I was yeah. like, Ugh. <laughs> and, um, and the thing that gave me pleasure, that really gave me a, a release from the pressure that I felt was writing. And I, I read Siddhartha, one of my dogs is currently named Siddhartha. Okay. So I, I, I read Siddhartha and, and I'm thinking, oh, this is it. Like, you know, my journey in life is to find myself, not, yeah. not to become a lawyer. And, but I still didn't have the strength. I didn't have the wherewithal. I didn't have the words to say to my family. I know I have been talking about being a lawyer forever, but I don't, I don't want to do this. So I, I continue on until I barely get kicked out, had to fight to get kicked out. 
And I did transfer to another law school. And so now I'm playing games because I'm calling the school and I keep pushing my right. admissions back. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, can, can I come in the fall? Oh, can I come next year? And then yeah. one of my best friends, she was like, okay, it's not because you're not smart enough. That's not the issue. <laughs> you don't want to do it. <laughs> right, 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 right. I was like, okay, this is the truth here. And it was great. It was like the best feeling ever. I felt like my world opened up. And yeah. I often think of how much different my life would have been. I obviously, you know, would have figured it out. But Right. I don't know that I would have been as happy or that I would have been as free or that I would have taken as many risks. So it was really the official permission I needed to really craft my own way and live yeah. my own dream and yeah. to be willing to just be a risk taker, like whatever yeah. that looked like. Yeah. So many of us live to, um, especially when you're young, you live to these family expectations and, and really um, your, your family, I know for me, um, I would tell my kids, hey, listen, if it's not for you, get out of it now. Yeah. You know, and so, but but sometimes the person thinks, oh my God, I'm letting my grandmother down, my grandfather down, my mom, and I'm letting them down because all my life I said I wanted to be thus and so, you know. Yeah. And and having the courage, like you say, to um, you know, free yourself <laughs> to become who yeah. you are now. Now you wrote you wrote some books, right? Yeah. You wrote your early books, your early books were in the black romance genre, am I right? Yes, yes, Abandon and Eternity, yes. Abandon and Eternity. You know, uh, how did you just get started? You were younger, right? Were you young or, were, you know, I, were you I was, fresh out of law school or, or? I only did a year of law school, so 22, yeah, 22. No, 20, 23, somewhere in there, yeah. Were they, were they easy to write? How did you get into that? You just said, hey, let me just start writing some fiction here. Basically, um, I had that story I had been working on and then it grew and grew and grew. And then I turned that into my first novel. And that was like right when Tara McMillan like blew up, waiting to exhale. Yeah, I I remember uh, those books. Those books caught fire. Yes. And I remember reading those and I was like, oh, I can do that. And um, so I'm self-taught and I just taught myself how to do it. And then once I had a manuscript, I was, so in those days, you know, it was the mail. You put the whole thing in the mail, (laughs) mail it off. (laughs) And um, that was not the right thing to do. And I didn't know that. I didn't know how to do it. And so I had a friend who worked at Essence and I went to New York to visit her and one of the people she worked with, and I'm sure this lady doesn't even remember this, like over her shoulder, she was like, oh yeah, go get this book. And it's going to tell you how to write a query letter. Okay. And So I did what she said. I I got a book on how to write a query letter. I wrote a query letter and I sent it to a few people. And then I I obviously was the right person and they were just starting a line of black romances. And I didn't consider myself a romance writer. And so, but it was an opportunity and I was like, oh, sure, you know, I'll go for it. And I didn't have an agent and I didn't need an agent. She was just acquiring manuscripts. And so that is how the first two books, um, Started. That was like fall, I think, 94. Wow. And I think on that line, the, the very first imprint, let me think, I don't know, maybe only 10 to 12 books were published. I could be mistaken about that, but I know there weren't very many right. of us. And then some of those women have continued. They still write romance. I, <clears throat> excuse me, 
I got off the romance train because, again, I didn't see myself as a romance writer. And because we were a new imprint and we're black, mm-hmm. it had to be so pristine. And like, you know, they couldn't curse or, you know, it's like maybe three curse words in the whole book. And, right. and if they had sex, they could only have sex with one person. And there were so many restrictions. And right. yeah. I mean, I wasn't like Zane, you know, nothing like that. But right, it, right. Was, it was still very restrictive. So I was like, OK, here I find myself in another situation where it's a wonderful opportunity but I'm being restricted and that didn't appeal to my free spirit (laughs) yeah yeah and then you wrote this phenomenal book that is getting I want to say worldwide acclaim especially in circles you wrote a book called motherhood so white a memoir of race gender and parenting in America and it's a nonfiction. Talk to, talk to us how about how you came about, and I, I kind of know the story, but share with my mm-hmm. listeners how you came about writing that book and the impact that it really has made. That, that book is really impactful for what's happening today. Oh, thank you. So Motherhood So White came about really, you know, what is it? The mother necessity is a mother of invention. So yeah, yeah. I was really ready to be a mother. And I wanted to adopt. I wanted to be married and all that as well. But I really wanted to adopt first. And so my uh, best friend is an an adoption social worker. And we would talk, you know, for years. I obviously knew quite a bit of information about that particular process. But when I went looking for information about, I was looking for a book about a single Black woman who decides to adopt on her own, you know, no fertility issues. She's not worried. It's not a substitute for a boyfriend or a husband, none of those things. And I couldn't find anything. And this is, again, here I start in the height of something. So it's the height of the mommy wars. You got all of these books that are doing great, you know, Tiger Mom and Shitty Mom and Slacker Mom and all these different things. But their demographic were you know, middle to upper middle class white women. Sure. And if you felt outside of that, you you couldn't find anything. And right. so I started writing early on because I didn't see myself on the page. And, you know, certainly as a parent, there's a lot of stuff that's universal, but mm-hmm. I needed to know as a black person, how do you go and tell your middle class black family, oh, by the way, not only did I not finish law school. That's a not bo- only do I refuse to get a full-time job. Not <laughs> only do I have two dogs and I move when I feel like it and I travel when I feel like it. I'm getting ready to introduce a child into my life. Like, what did that look like? Yeah, and, that, that, we need a book on that. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> we got strong opinions about things. You just don't walk and, into a black family and say, hey, no. uh, I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to adopt a child. We're going to what? Yeah. 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 And it's, a, and it's a child. I don't know. So it wasn't right. like it was a family member. So, you know, so-and-so needs to yeah. take her bait. No, no, no. Yeah. Right. So I, I never saw myself on the page in that respect. And so I began writing. And um, so that was the beginning of like nine years, like the early years, really, I was really kind of ranting because I noticed like a lot of racism within adoption because everything was very, the support was geared towards white people who were adopting children of color. And this is, you know, 14 years ago. So it's, yeah, that, that was the popular thing to do. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that was how that began. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you said a mouthful, um, you know, we as, as, as black folks, uh, African-Americans, black folks, however you, you know, whatever the political term is, but you know what I'm saying? 
we're we're mm-hmm. quick to raise family members, and mm-hmm. we'll you know uh, we'll some some babies in, in around church. We might even adopt. We even somebody. Oh yes. We'll official unofficially bring a, a one of our own into our homes yes. and raise them. Yes. You know, and that's great. But to walk in and and tell our family that we're going to go through this adoption process, you know. And uh, I, I know that was that was that was a challenge in and of itself. Like you said, there's no books written about that. There's mm-hmm. no books written, and I had no idea that the level of racism that that um, existed within the adoption agencies and adoption process. Yeah, it's um, you know, again, it's not geared for us. It's right. geared for you know white families who are adopting children of color. And there's been some movement in the last few years, but it's interesting that the, okay, so nationally, the majority of kids in foster care are white children. But then when you take a look at the numbers, black children represent the largest demographic because we have the smallest population. You know, we're what 12, 15% of the population and 33% of our kids are in foster care. So, you know, that's a a really big number. So you would think that there would be more information about when you get your black child (laughs) there. And even as a black parent, there are going to be things that will come up and issues that you will have that you won't have if you have a white child. Um, And even adopting an Asian child is going to bring up, you know, some issues. Of course. Of course. Everything from uh, health issues to society. Yes. 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 you know, you you know, I, I I thank God for our white brothers and sisters that yes. adopt uh, uh, African American children. But oh sure, uh, you, you got to get the baby's hair done, and uh, you do. You need some black folks to teach you how to get that done. And you have to be open to that and not take it personally. It's not an attack, and right. you know, and they need lotion, and you can't yeah. have them in an all white environment and raise them like they're white children because they are right. not. You right. know, because because once they leave your site, right. the rest of the world sees them for who they are, which is a black boy or a black girl out in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that so motherhood so white. The the, mm-hmm. the title I, like I was explain to me motherhood so white. Like the the title where where where'd you der- derive that from? So the title is a play on words. Um, I had written an article called Adoptions. um, I think it was called Parenting So White or Parents Adoption So White, something like that. But basically a play on Oscars, Oscar So White. And, you know, so the the same concept that within motherhood, there are definitely racial hierarchies. And, you know, one more again, you know, Black women, we're at the bottom of the racial hierarchies for motherhood, because even the support that is given to white mothers isn't necessarily extended to black mothers and um, especially single black mothers. And so there's still a lot of stereotype around who a single black mother is and and how she came to be a single black mother. And um, and then even the fact that black people do adopt, you know, I'm in a same race adoption and my kids and we we favor. So you're not going to think and you won't even know that my kids are adopted. But if it comes up, it is in 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 white spaces, adoption is very normalized. And so if when I share, oh, yeah, I'm an adoptive parent, it's, you know, it's, oh, you know, really. 
And always the go-to is where are they from? Because, you know, it's super popular to adopt a child from Ethiopia or, you know, someplace other than public foster care system. And so when I say Los Angeles County, and I'm proud of that. Right. You know, that's another thing. But just in terms of like we look at the numbers of black maternal health and the fact that black women die at at outrageously higher rates than any other group in childbirth and before. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then just trying to get help in those spaces from the medical profession and, you know, stress levels that occur for black women. So we've got regular parental stress. And then we've got a layer of societal stress. Like our mental health is, is in turmoil just on a regular day. And, and that's not really discussed, but, you know, we hear a lot of, you know, for moms, oh, you know, take a nice bath, drink a glass of wine and go on a beautiful trip. And I'm in favor of all of that. But if that's not in your budget, if you don't live near the coast and there, you know, we're, if you don't have access to those things and yeah. then that's useless. It's like, no, I need to talk about the fact that, you know, George Floyd was murdered and I need to talk about the fact that Breonna Taylor was asleep and she was murdered and right. Ahmaud yeah. Aubrey was jogging. Cause that could be my child or that could be me. And that's painful to me. And I'm carrying that around with me all the time, whether or not I'm talking about it. Yeah. One more, one more question about adoption. Are you finding that more black families are adopting? Is this yes or no? I, I don't know. You know what? I think so. What I have found through Instagram, I've only been on Instagram, um, I guess, a couple of years now. I have found groups, which is wonderful and surprising that cater to adopting Black children. And it's Black people encouraging other Black people to adopt. So I'm definitely seeing more of that and seeing more Black adoptees be more public about their stories. Um, because typically you have the Korean adoptees, Asian adoptees who are very vocal about their experiences. So it's been really great to listen to black people talk about, oh, I was adopted by black people or, you know, white people or whomever and share their stories. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So you're published everywhere, right? You have Mm -hmm. published everywhere. You know, how does one and I'm looking I'm looking at all the articles that you wrote (laughs) that you wrote, you know, I've sent things in. And they make me feel like I'm a horrible writer. It's just constantly projected. I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm an author. I wrote a book. You know what I'm yes. saying? You yes. know, and I, I sent things in and I don't care where I've said it. They, reject, you know, I, I see all of this. So mm-hmm. so what would you tell someone who's really trying to get an article published in Huffington Post, New York Times, or whatever the case may be? Um, is rejection normal? Oh, my God. Yes. Listen, as a writer, rejection is your friend. And I went okay. nine years getting rejected before... I got an agent um, who felt like she could sell my project. So, you know, wow. again, lots of racism in the publishing industry still. Yeah. The gatekeepers tend to be white women and you've got some who are, you know, on top of it and really open to, okay, let's see what's out in the world. Let's yeah. see what needs to be out in the world. Yeah. And then you've got a lot who, and it isn't always one person's decision, but, you know, ultimately the decision becomes, oh, your story's marginal. Right. Yeah. Which is code for it's not going to sell. And yeah. so at the end of the day, it's a business and people want to make money. And so it's like, okay, you say you want diverse voices, but then I pitch you and you right. reject right. my work. So rejection is a part of it. And as a writer, you definitely cannot, uh, 
you can't be deterred by it. If you have something to say, I would definitely say keep pushing. Now, what that may mean is that you're, you won't get paid. I mean, I wrote for years and I would have things published and I didn't get paid. I mean, for years. Yeah. And that was fine. Um, and then eventually there was a payoff. I get paid now. But, you know, every now and then I, I'm in a different position now. So if I pitch for the most part, it's accepted. But Right. The you know pay equity that's a whole nother issue, uh, but definitely don't give don't give up and be willing to work for free. Okay, sure. I, I just wanted some of our, our our budding writers to understand that and not get discouraged in that. Um, you know, oh, no. I wanted them to to just stay consistent. And you must. You'll get there. You'll stay. <clears throat> so, what are you learning now? Before I let you go, what? Mm-hmm. What are you learning right now at this stage in your life where you are right now, have gone through that wonderful journey you just shared with us? What are you learning? What is Nefertiti learning right now? Well, so before you press record, we were talking about children. And so I am learning because I've got a 14 year old and, uh, you know, just really learn. Parenting's hard. I mean, I knew that before and, you know, every stage is different and it's, it's fun, but it's hard. It definitely is hard. And, uh, even with my eight year old, love her to pieces, but my God, sometimes I'm like, Ooh. And, um, and then I think the other thing that I'm learning, uh, definitely like in the, the lit space, literary space is that, there are trends in, in literature. And so depending on sort of where we are in the world, that's going to drive, you know, who gets published at that particular moment. And so, you know, kind of back to the not giving up piece and it's really being flexible. So like I have an idea for my next book, but I've been sitting on it for many, many months because I'm not sure just yet that that's something I really want to dive into. So in the interim, my question to myself all the time is, okay, so then what are you going to write about? So it's it's just a series of reinventions. You know, my my brand is is motherhood. It's it's black motherhood specifically, but it's motherhood and parenting. So right. just making sure that when I write about other things that uh, I give myself enough flexibility. So it's really like, how do I, you know, capitalize on the moment and stretch myself so that, again, free spirit, you know, so that I'm not boxed in. So that's what I'm learning and working on right now. Like, okay, let's, let's like make sure that my, my net, that I get to cast a very wide net. <laughs> Very good. I, I I just love what you're doing, and and I, I I thank you for for just really filling the space that you're in. It's it's um it's great to know that you're out there. It's great to know that you're being an advocate. Um, um now if someone um wants to find you, wants to talk about you, or talk to you, I should say, or write you a letter, or talk about adoption, how do they find you? that you can find me pretty much anywhere. So on Instagram, I am nefertitiaustin.com and I respond. If you send me a note, I will respond. Okay. And um, on Twitter at Nefertiti Austin and Facebook, same Nefertiti Austin. Or if you send an email, 
My website is www.nefertitiaustin.com and there's a, a link to contact me or boxes that you fill in and it will eventually make its way to me and I will respond. So all things Nefertiti Austin. Yes, you will all find All things me. Nefertiti Austin. Nefertiti, thank you for doing what you do. Thank you for being such a great guest. Thank you for being such a phenomenal writer and inspiration, uh, a, a, a great mom. Thank you for just mm -hmm. being um, an impact and, and uh, being as big as you are in our culture today. Thank you. Well, uh, thanks for having me and Motherhood So White on your podcast. I appreciate it. <laughs> guys you've been listening to the unstoppable podcast with ralph graves jr listen if you haven't please go out and get motherhood so white please go get that mother so white a memoir of race gender and parenting an american non-fiction it's an american non-fiction by nefertiti austin go get it and while you get that go grab unstoppable unstoppable by yours truly um seven universal laws that'll change the way you pursue and achieve success so guys you've been listening to the unstoppable podcast my name is ralph graves jr thank you so much for tuning in i will see you guys next time god bless you god bless you god bless you